I suspect, looking out of the sea of faces, that there are at least some of you who know famous people. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, because we probably all disagree on who is famous, justifiably or not. Um, but if you're sort of looking in from the outside on a group of people you would love to know, especially the famous, the, those who sort of seem to, to live and work and breathe in different circles from we do, and you really would love to know them, you're asking the question, well, how would I get in? What would be our connection? How would we ever sort of bump into one another? How would we get to know each other? In this story, we've got two people who end up meeting somebody in the flesh that they thought they would never meet again, and in a way that they would never have expected. They would have assumed that this was a meeting that was entirely beyond them, out of their reach. And yet Jesus, who had lived alongside them, and who, as far as they're concerned, was dead as dead could be, comes as the risen saviour and walks alongside them along the road. And the question is, how on earth did they get to meet him? But the bigger question is, how on earth do you and I get to meet him? Is it actually possible, day by day, week by week, month by month, to know the risen Jesus? Is it possible to actually have a friendship with God in Jesus? Is is what we've just baptised Cara and Michelle into actually just a nice idea, but something always out of reach, the idea of having a friendship with God, having a companionship through life? Or is it something that actually could be ours? And my guess is that the thing that we need to learn from this story is that it is far closer to us, far more normal, far more ordinary, far more accessible than you could ever imagine. Far more uh, just there, within arm's reach, than some sort of celebrity that we'll never connect with. And the most important thing, just to see what happens here, is that it's very, very ordinary. Very ordinary. We we were thinking about this the other week, on Easter Sunday in particular, and and, uh, last week as we thought about the empty tomb. If you were writing a story, if you were making up something and you wanted to invent, what would it look like for Jesus, God come to be a human being, to rise from the dead? What would he look like? This is not what you'd have him look like, is it? Last week we were saying, honestly, if you were making this up, you wouldn't have the risen Jesus being able to be mistaken for a gardener. It'd be a nutty thing to write into a story if you were making it up. Surely, if you were making it up, you'd have Jesus bursting out of the tomb, preferably with trumpets or some sort of synth backing track. You'd have bright sort of shining lights. You'd have fire. Um, You'd have sort of strobe lights going. And you'd have him being, you know, 20 foot tall. You know, you'd go for it. Because this is something so out of the ordinary, you could pretty much make up anything you like. Now, actually, there is a story like that. Uh, It's in the so-called apocryphal gospel of St. Peter. Apocryphal because the very early church looked at it and went, nah, that wasn't what happened. But on the face of it, it sounds rather better, rather more dramatic. It envisages two white figures in shining clothes that come down out of heaven, and it says they were so tall, their heads reached the clouds. All the soldiers dropped um, dead of fear. They then burst the stone out of, the, um, out of the, 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 the grave entrance and they go into the grave and they come out with Jesus who makes them look like puny nothings, who just is awesome in his majesty and his power. Couldn't be mistaken for the gardener, certainly couldn't be mistaken for just another guy walking alongside you along the road. Now, actually, the church looked at that and went, well, that wasn't what happened. Might sound more impressive, might sound more dramatic, actually just sounds more made up. The whole point of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John as they talk about Jesus is that actually it's not what you'd make up, 
it rings much truer. And that is definitely true of what Luke writes here. Jesus comes alongside Cleopas, and we think it was probably his wife, so Cleopas and his wife, as they did a journey that they'd done umpteen times before. They were simply walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're walking on a very ordinary, dusty road. They're just talking, just the two of them. And just like you would have done in those days, somebody who's doing the same journey catches up with them and starts walking alongside them and just starts chatting to them. This is the risen Jesus. But they don't recognise him. They're not expecting him. He's not what they expect. He's not all bright, shining clothes. He's just an ordinary guy walking alongside them. It's very, very ordinary. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. Just an ordinary guy. In fact, they, ordinary, they nearly missed it. If you look at the end of the story... Uh, verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. Now notice they don't say, hey, you might be Jesus, we better take you in. They were simply being ordinarily hospitable. This was the ordinary stuff of normal um, Middle Eastern life. Stay and eat. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll know that's part of just an ordinary hospitality culture. When Jesus comes to meet with us now and today. He loves to meet with us in the ordinary stuff of life. Whatever your ordinary Monday looks like, it might be in being a parent, it might be at the school gate, it might be changing nappies or being up overnight, absolutely. It might be um, at work, sitting at a desk, doing a presentation, doing some sales figures. Could be talking to your neighbour or talking to your mum on the phone. In the ordinary stuff of ordinary life, the Bible says again and again and again, most of the time, that's where Jesus meets us. Now, one of the problems is that because we love to tell the stories of the, if you like, the miraculous times, the amazing times, when God does step in and do the unexpected, when God heals in response to prayer, when God gives visions or words, because we love to tell those stories, and they're great stories to tell, because God does do those things. The danger is that we miss the fact that most of the time, for most Christians, he meets us in the ordinary. And actually, that's really good news. Because God didn't meet us in the ordinary, that would mean that 99% of our life was irrelevant to him. That faith somehow was only connected to the bits that felt spiritual. We're reminded here from Cleopas and his wife that if we want to meet Jesus, if we want to walk with him, we simply need to be open to the possibility of meeting him in the ordinary stuff of life. So how does he connect with them in the ordinary? How might Jesus connect with you tomorrow? How might you spot him? How might you have eyes open to see Jesus at work in your life? Whether you're somebody who owns faith and says, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, or whether you're looking in from the outside wondering if this is for you. Well, the first thing that he does is he connects with them at a point, it sounds a bit negative, doesn't it, of despair. And I'm not trying to dampen the, the, the mood of celebration. But the fact is, at this point, they are in an absolute pit of despair. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. It's a lovely moment, actually. You know, if you're walking with somebody just along, just talking about things, and they ask you a question that makes your heart sink, you do that, don't you? You're walking along and you just stop. That's what you do. Well, that's... Exactly, for Cleopas and his wife. Jesus says, what were you talking about? And they go, 
And then they're quite rude to him, actually. I suspect later in life, when they look back on this conversation, they're thinking, that was Jesus. We've just called him an idiot, which is basically what they do. They're effectively saying to him, are you thick or a foreigner? Uh, it's the, the classic. They were being quite rude to him. Do you, do you not know? Are you the only person around here who hasn't realised what's happened to Jesus? Jesus, who we thought was going to be the great one to come and redeem Israel, he has been arrested and tortured and tried and put to death and everything is over. How could you not know that? You see, without resurrection, the only thoughtful approach to the ordinary stuff of life, you could argue, is despair. Now, that sounds a bit of an over-the-top statement, but let me try and justify it for a moment. If we come from nowhere and we are going to nowhere, if we're not loved and prefigured and planned for and prepared and given by God, as we've just been proclaiming that Kara has been in her birth, and if we're not going somewhere, that there isn't a life beyond this life that is permanent and a gift and ours, if we exist simply for this span in between, then what does that say about the meaning of those days, of those months, of those years? The disciples were very clear. As far as they were concerned, listen to what they say, verse 19. They say Jesus was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God. But he was handed over, sentenced to death, and we are now in despair. In other words, Actually, they weren't suddenly going, oh, maybe he didn't do all of those things. He did. He did all of those things. Three years of incredible ministry. Great teaching, great healings, raising the dead, all sorts of incredible things. But, they say, if there is no resurrection, then we're in despair because those three years effectively mean nothing. They're gone. They're past. The first place that Jesus might meet us in our ordinary lives is those moments in life when our heart sinks into our stomachs. When there is a pit of despair in us that just goes, maybe life has nothing to offer. We've all been there. Sometimes it's for long periods of time. Sometimes it's for little moments. Sometimes it's when something terrible has happened to us or our family. Sometimes it's actually simply when we open the newspaper or listen to the radio or watch the TV and we see the news and there is that sinking despair in us. If you were walking, you would stop like they did and your head would sink. And actually, if you're a Christian, you're not immune to those times. I don't think you should be, actually. Because if life is lived in between a nowhere and a nowhere, if I come from nowhere and I'm going to nowhere, then in between, there is so much that is dark, so much that is difficult, so much that drags us down, that we have to acknowledge there are times when we despair. Jesus meets them right there. It's not that somehow that sense, the pit in our stomach, is the opposite of faith. Actually, Jesus meets us right there, just like he met them. And he says to us, not, don't be silly, not, celebrate, be happy. He doesn't try and sort of jolt them out of their silliness. He simply says, you haven't seen the whole picture. You don't see it all. There is resurrection. There is hope. There is a future. You came from somewhere, you are going to somewhere. And everything in between matters. It means something because of resurrection. That's the first place Jesus connects in our ordinary everyday lives. Maybe that will be you tomorrow. Maybe it will be you this coming week. Jesus will connect with you in that despair. But there's a second thing here. 
It's that Jesus connects with them in what they felt they needed. Now, just think for a moment. If, if you had to sort of write down, I'm not going to make you do it, and you're certainly not going to have to tell me about it, but just think for a moment. If you had to write down, right at this moment in time, what your greatest need was, what you needed the most, I wonder what it would be. These friends of Jesus, Cleopas and his wife, were absolutely clear. They knew exactly what they needed the most. And if you'd said to them, what do you need? They'd have said, of course, what we, what we need. We need the Romans gone. Now, I was brought up in Asterix and Obelix. I don't know whether you remember them. Uh, but in Asterix and Obelix, the Romans are a cuddly, somewhat disorganized rabble. They generally lose. And when they're losing, they're fairly lovable in the midst of it. The fact is that the Romans really were an incredibly efficient conquering and killing machine. They took over countries, they built a huge empire, and they just trampled the systems and the, uh, the sort of governance and the, the ways of life of a lot of different people down through many centuries. And the Jews in particular, the people of Israel, just hated the Romans. The Romans had kicked out their true and right king, they'd belittled their religion, They'd put boundaries on how they were able to worship, and they were desperate. This was their need. They were desperate for God to rescue them. To, the word they'd have used was to redeem them. You redeem something by setting it free. The word comes from slavery. If somebody's a slave, in those days, you had to pay a price to set them free. So they were saying, God, set us free. Redeem us from the Romans. Look what they say. Um, the, sorry, over the page. Ah, verse 21. We had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. This was our need. We thought Jesus was it. He was going to come and meet our need. And what's happened? Well, he's dead. And the Romans killed him. It's the end. Our need is not met. Time and again, what Jesus has to do with those he meets is to receive their desperate need to recognise it, sometimes to meet it, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Jairus' daughter, whether it's the healing of the man with leprosy, whoever it is, often he meets people's needs. But even when he does, he always points beyond them and says, actually, you need something even more. He'd have said to Cleopas um, and, and his wife, and maybe he does in this Bible study, he does that we don't sadly have recorded for us when he explains the scriptures, he'd have probably said something like this. Yeah, you need the Romans kicked out, but actually you need a bigger redemption because you're not simply under the slavery of Rome. Each of you is under the slavery of what the Bible calls sin, but which he wouldn't have meant simply a list of things you shouldn't do, but a cycle of never quite being the people that we wanted to be, never quite being the people God made us to be, an addiction to being who we want to be, that drags us down and away from God, that stops us people being God's friends. And the way in which Jesus was going to come and redeem them was through suffering and death. Not through riding a white charger and leading an army and kicking out the Romans, but by simply going to the cross for them. Maybe one of the ways that Jesus will meet you this week in the ordinary is by bringing to him what you feel you need. Uh, umpteen people have ended up here at All Souls and other churches because they come and we come with a need. For some people, it's a need for companionship and belonging. 
For some of us, it's a need for wisdom. How am I going to live life? How am I going to bring up my kids? For some of us, it's a need for a taste of the, the other, the spiritual. Lots of different reasons why people end up at church. Lots of different reasons why people end up becoming Christians and following Jesus. And in every case, Jesus wants to say there is something even bigger and beyond. What you need most is this freedom from sin and a friendship with me. It's one final thing. In the ordinary of everyday life, I think Jesus meets us in our despairs. He meets us in our felt needs. But he also meets us in our questions. The stuff we do up here in our heads, our intellect, our rationale. Look what he does. It's a fantastic moment, this. Um, They're telling him the story. If you turn over the page to 1062 at the top, they tell him the story of what happens. Verse 24, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, what Jesus could have done at that point is simply go, I paraphrase here, ta-da! End of story, done. I'm here. I mean, that, that would have been it, wouldn't it? Then they'd have known. Then they'd have known, I'm alive. You don't need to worry anymore. But Jesus knows that they've got questions. Jesus knows that in their minds, their intellect, that wouldn't be enough. They need to know why and how and what. And so what he does, and the questions for them as being good Jewish people, would have been from their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So he meets their questions, and he walks them through what we call the Old Testament, and he shows them the answers to their questions. And then he reveals himself to them. Now, actually, as we go through our lives... We never stop having questions. I had a fantastic moment at the 11 o'clock service, just before the 11 o'clock service. I was sitting here, and I was rewriting my sermon, as I do every time. I never preach the same sermon three times. It changes through the day. Um, And I was sitting here, scribbling away, and uh, this little girl came up to me. I think she's about seven, seven or eight. I know her very well. And she came up to me, and for about ten minutes, she peppered me with questions. Um, And she wanted to know about Adam and Eve, she wanted to know about the Bible. She wanted to know about what God looked like. She wanted to know about how, who made God. And if nobody made God, wasn't that not a bit odd? It's a brilliant question about who made God's squidgy nose. I wasn't entirely sure where that came from, but it was to do with who made God and, and all of that. Uh, we ended up talking about suffering. We ended, I mean, it was an amazing... It was, I thought I'd put my sermon down. This was far more interesting. The great thing was that actually she was asking questions. But you do that when you're seven or you're eight. The problem is by the time you're 27 or 28, or 37 or 38, or dare I say it, nearly 47, 48, you've stopped. Or at least you've stopped asking them out loud. I think this meeting between Jesus and Cleopas and his wife says to us, don't ever stop asking questions, because Jesus loves to meet them. Some of them will get answered. Some of them will have to wait till we meet him face to face. But we don't stop asking them. We don't stop pushing. We don't, as I said last week, we don't take our brains out at the door of church, leave them on one side, have a worship time, and on the way back out, put our brains back in. We're supposed to be whole people as we come to Jesus. Our despairs, our needs, our questions. And in the ordinary stuff of life, that's where Jesus meets us. So I wonder where and how you're going to meet Jesus this week. I wonder where you're going to notice him. They had to have the eyes to spot him. They nearly missed him. It was only because they invited him for a meal. Otherwise, maybe they'd have never known. Where will you meet Jesus on Monday? We're going to pray together before we come to worship again. And uh, as we do so, let's just bring to God our Mondays. I don't know where you're going to be on Monday. 
Monday has that ring about it of an ordinary day, perhaps a day that not, not many of us particularly look forward to. And as we come to Monday, bring to Jesus the ordinary stuff that that day will hold for you. It's joys, it's despair, it's needs, maybe the questions you're going to be carrying into it, and pray a very simple prayer. Whether you believe it or not, you don't lose anything by praying it. Jesus, if you're real, if you're there, I'd love to meet you on Monday. I'd love to know you in the ordinary stuff of life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for meeting Cleopas and his wife on the the road to Emmaus. Thank you that you met them in a perfectly ordinary way, just walking along a dusty road. Thank you that you met them at the depth of their despair. And you know some of us are carrying that despair in our hearts. Please meet us right there. Thank you that you met them as they were so sure what they needed. And you pointed them beyond it to you. You know our needs. Help us to meet you there too. And thank you that you didn't disdain their questions. You didn't bypass their questions with a great display of power. Thank you that you respected their intellect, their rationality. You know our questions. You know the stuff that doesn't add up. Some of us have been Christians for decades and we've got huge questions of you. Please, would you help us to grapple with those? Please, would you meet us there? Jesus, in the ordinary stuff of Monday and of Tuesday and of the whole of the week, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see you, hearts wide open to you, that we would meet the risen Jesus each day.